Chapter 6, Part 1 of Tales of a Vanishing River. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Tales of a Vanishing River by Earl H. Reed. Muskrat Hyatt's Redemption. Except from a picturesque standpoint, Rat Hyatt was not an ornament to the river country. Its meager and widely scattered social life and its average of morality were more or less affected by his shortcomings. In many communities he would be considered an undesirable citizen. He was looked upon as a good-natured bad egg and as one industrious in the ways of sin by his associates at Tipton Posey's store. But the habitués of that time-honored loafing place always welcomed him, for he possessed a reminiscent talent and a peculiar kind of dry wit and repartee that helped to enliven the sleepy days. In this world much sin is forgiven an entertaining personality. There was always a feeling of incompleteness on the store platform when Rat was absent, that nobody ever admitted. But when he arrived and took his accustomed seat on the green wheelbarrow that was part of the merchandise that Posey kept outside in the daytime, the depressing vacancy existed no longer. Bill Stiles' temperamental discharges of ornate philosophy and his comments on life's ironies in human folly required a target, and this was commonly the role assigned to Rat Hyatt. "'I'm always the goat,' remarked Rat one hot afternoon, as we sat in the shade of the wooden awning. "'Why don't you pick on somebody that likes to listen? I've been kidded by experts.' and this long talk of yourn seems kind of mixed up. The trouble with you and a lot of the other old mudbirds round here is you open your mouth and go away and leave it and forget you started it. Now look here, rat, replied Bill. You ain't got no call to talk back to me. When I'm talking to you, I ain't arguing. I'm telling you how tis. I knowed you when you was knee-high to a duck, and you ain't got brains enough to have the headache with. That fellow that you sold my dog to last time was ere yesterday asking about you, and if Spot had ever come back. He'd been up to your place, and it's a good thing for you that you and Spot was off somewheres in the woods. He told me what he traded you for the animal, and I want you to bring them things to me, for it was my dog that you got em with. As Spot was asleep under the wheelbarrow, Bill's equity in the repeating rifle and cartridges that Hyatt had received in exchange for him seemed rather hazy. The reason for Spot's prolonged absence some months before was now apparent to Bill, and although the intelligent animal had returned home as expected after being traded off, the old man's nurtured wrath was waiting for Rat when he arrived that afternoon. Hyatt seemed in no wise abashed at the revelation of Bill's knowledge of his shady transaction with the trapper. If I hadn't a knowed the dog had come home, I wouldn't a let him go. 
It showed how much I trusted him when I let him go off with a stranger like that. If that fella thought he could keep a fine dog like that away from them that loved him, he ought to suffer for its foolishness and leave something in the country to be remembered by. Of course, if something had had happened to Spot and he hadn't a come back, I'd a given you the rifle. But I knowed that dog was all right. You can have him back any time you want him, if he'll stay with you. But you hadn't ought to jump on me as long as I ain't lost him. He's in a first-class health. It's the funny ideas that some fellows have about other people's property that keeps the state's prison filled up, remarked Bill. It ain't the lying and stealing that gets em thar. It's getting caught. If they don't get caught, it's just called business shrewdness. You bilked that fella out of that gun, and you're depriving me of it when you used my dog to get it with. You're a fine man to trust anything with, yar. If I had my place to keep spot, I wouldn't let you have him a minute. I can fill my shanty with stuff by trading him off, and then waiting for him to come home just as well as you can, and it would be all right for me to do it. But you ain't got no such right, especially if you're going to swindle people. After Bill's assurance that he had told the deluded trapper nothing of Spot's return, and that he had gone off up the river, the conversation drifted into channels that were less irritating. The old man's mind became calm, and he ascended the narrow stairway on the outside of the building to his room over the store for a nap. That old fella ought to have a phonograph with his voice in it so he could spin it and listen to himself spiel, remarked Rad after Bill had left. I used to often watch him when he was settin' quiet out there by the hour, with that dinky hat bowled down in front of him lookin' wise, and wonderin' what big thoughts was fermentin' up in that old moss-covered dome of his. But I found out after a while that he wasn't thinkin' about nothin' at all. Rat wended his way down to the bank under the bridge where he had left his pushboat, followed by faithful spot, and pulled his way upstream. When he reached the vicinity of the stranded houseboat, where he had lived for several years, he reconnoitred it cautiously. No malign presence was detected. He looked over his beehives that were scattered about among the trees, and provided two or three weeks' food supplies for his chickens, and some young coons and weasels that he was raising for their fur in some wire cages under the house. He then packed a few necessities into his boat and secured the door of the house with a padlock. He was not quite satisfied that the trapper, who was looking for Spot, had left the country, and he did not intend to take any chances. The dog was ordered to lie down in the bow of the canoe, where he was carefully covered. The intelligent animal complied cheerfully with all of the arrangements. Rat then proceeded down the river for several miles to the Big Marsh, where he did most of his trapping during the late fall, winter, and spring. He had two motives for his trip, besides the idea of avoiding a possible visit of the trapper to the houseboat. One was to see if the muskrat population on the marsh had increased properly during the summer, and the other was to visit Melindy Taylor, 
whom he deeply loved, and by whom he was scorned as a suitor. Melindy was a peppery widow of about forty who lived with her aged mother in a small house beyond the marsh. She was the owner of a wild duck farm, and conducted it with such success that Rat looked forward to spending his declining days in peace and comfort if he could persuade Melindy to take him into life partnership. Many hundreds of mallards and teal nested among the boggy places in the marsh during the summer. The eggs were gathered, put into incubators and under complacent hens on the farm. The ducklings were reared in wire enclosures that prevented them from joining their kind in the skies when the fall migrations began. During the game season, when they were properly matured, they were skillfully strangled and shipped away as wild birds at game prices. Rat had always willingly hunted nests and gathered eggs for his beloved. He did odd jobs about the farm and participated in everything but the harvest. Like Jacob of old, toiling for the hand of Rachel, Rat's industry, although intermittent, was sustained by alluring hope. Outside of her earthly possessions, it must be admitted that Melindy had few charms. One of her eyes was slightly on the bias, and at times it had a baleful gleam. Two of her front teeth protruded in a particularly unpleasant way, as though she expected to bite at something alive. She had an angular disposition, and her temper was not conducive to the even flow of life's little amenities. To use a Scotch expression, she was Uncle Pernickety. She was intolerant of human frailty in others, especially of the kinds that entered so largely into Rat Hyatt's makeup. But divinities sometimes appeared in strange forms. To Rat's love-blinded eyes, she was the one lone flower that grew in the dreary desert of life's monotonies. There is something about everybody that appeals to somebody— and this is why there is nobody who cannot find somebody willing to marry them. Perhaps this streak of primitive cussedness in Melindy appealed to compatible instincts in Rat's heart, but be that as it may, he was a faithful and much-abused worshipper. When he reached the farther end of the great marsh, he threaded his way through familiar openings among the tall masses of rushes and wild rice landed on the soggy shore, and pulled his canoe up among the underbrush. He and Spot then took the winding path that led through the woods to the duck farm, about a quarter of a mile away. He intended to stay at the farm, in seclusion, for a week or two, do some work that he had long promised, and then put out his traps on the marsh. He kept about a hundred of them in Melindy's barn when they were not in use. About halfway down the marsh, a long tongue of wooded land extended out into the oozy slough. It was known as Swallowtail Point. This was Tipton Posey's favorite haunt during the shooting season. Thousands of wild ducks and geese passed over it on their way up or down the river, and encircling about over the marsh, 
which was a bountiful feeding ground. Bill Wirick spent much time on the point with Posey. They had a little shack back among the low trees, sheltered so that it could not be seen from the sky, and hidden from the water by the tall brush. These two worthies had solved at least one of life's problems in this secluded retreat, for they did not have to adjust themselves to the convenience of anybody else. In the early morning, just before daylight, when the ducks began to move over the marsh, and in the evening twilight, when the incoming flocks were settling for the night, little puffs of smoke and faint reports issued from the end of the point, and dark objects fell out of the sky. They were diligently retrieved by Posey's brown water spaniel. Occasionally wild geese would sweep low over the point, scatter and rise excitedly as the puffs of smoke took toll from the honking ranks. In addition to a big bunch of wooden decoys that floated in an open space near the edge of the point, the wary birds were lured by mechanical quacks and honks from small patented devices operated by their concealed enemies. Notwithstanding their civilized garb and highly developed weapons, Tip and Bill were barbarians. Their instincts were lower than those of the carnivora of the jungle, for they killed not for food, or even for profit, but for the joy of the killing. They did not bother about the wounded birds that curved away and fluttered into the matted grasses and rushes to suffer in silence or be eaten by the big snapping turtles that had no ideas of sport. They exulted over piles of beautiful feathered creatures, motionless and splashed with blood, many of which were afterwards thrown away. Tip had devoted many of his idle hours to the invention of a new goose call. The range of the ordinary devices seemed to him too restricted. His theory was that if the volume of sound could be increased so as to fill a radius of four or five miles, the distant V-shaped flocks could be lured to within gunshot of the point. After long meditation and consultation with Bill Wirick, they began putting the plan into execution. They procured a pair of blacksmith's bellows from a distant country town, and some big instruments that had once belonged to a local brass band. These things, in addition to some rubber garden hose and a lot of other miscellaneous material, were carefully covered in a wagon and secretly conveyed to the point. Weeks were spent in the construction of the apparatus. The brass instruments were arranged in the interior of a huge megaphone. Rubber balls bobbed about intermittently within the capacious horns when the air was pumped through them. The requisite volume of sound was attained, but somehow the turbulent honks of the wild geese were not satisfactorily imitated, although repeated adjustment and alteration gave much hope of success. 
the experiments were conducted cautiously during the summer when there was nobody on the marsh and no mention of the contrivance was made around the store for a cruel gauntlet of jibes and merciless humour awaited the non-success of the enterprise if the wiseacres on the platform ever learned of it rat hyatt although much interested in all that pertained to the marsh and its surroundings had never suspected what was going on on the point he never had occasion to land there and by common consent its possession by posey and Wirrick for shooting purposes was respected by the few hunters who frequented the vicinity melindy taylor had sometimes heard some terrible noises from the direction of the point but she was too far away to be much disturbed. Both Posey and Wirrick had often referred to Melindy as an old fussbug, although she was much younger than either of them, and they probably would not have cared if they had scared her out of the country, but she had little curiosity about things that did not affect her duck farm. She and her mother had concluded that the uncanny sounds were produced by donkeys in the woods, and doubtless this was also the opinion of most of those who afterward learned all of the facts. When Rat emerged from his retirement at the duck farm, he spent two or three days puttering about through the water openings, setting his traps. The furred inhabitants of the slough had builded their picturesque little domes of stringy roots, rushes, and dead grass, and plastered them together with lumps of mud in the quiet places, away from the river currents that crept in sinuous and broken channels through the broad wastes of sodden labyrinths. Hyatt was an intelligent trapper, and he was careful not to depopulate his grounds. He frequently moved the traps, so as not to exhaust the animals in a particular locality. The little competition he had on the marsh must have been discouraging to his rivals, for he always had more traps at the end of the season than at its beginning, and the traps set by others never seemed to be very productive, except to Hyatt. By degrees each newcomer was eliminated. Rat had finished a hard day's work, he sat on some dry grass in the bottom of his canoe, lighted a redolent old pipe, and decided to indulge in a good smoke and a long rest before starting up the river. Twilight had come. The vast expanse of overgrown water was silent, except for the low lullabies of the marsh birds among the thick grasses and bulrushes. He sat for a long time and watched the smoke curl up into the still air. The moon came over the distant rim of the forest that bordered the great marsh, and one by one the stars began to tremble in the crystal sky. But it was not with the eye of the poet that Rat regarded these things. The moonlighted river would be easy to navigate on the trip home. Suddenly a flash of greenish light shot into the heavens in the northwest, and in a few minutes the entire horizon in every direction flamed and shimmered with long gleaming streamers of rose and green beams that touched fluttering segments of a corona of orange glow at the zenith. Rat had often seen the aurora borealis, 
He was familiar with sheet lightning and the electrical discharges of the thunderstorms, but this awful light was something new. It was a magnetic storm, one of those rare phenomena that the average person sees but once in a lifetime and never forgets, caused by the sudden incandescence of heavily charged solar dust in the Earth's atmosphere. The play of the fitful, quivering gleams through the firmament was a sublime spectacle. The motionless air had the peculiar odor that comes from an excess of ozone. Rat Hyatt was in the throes of mortal fright. The dog uttered a long howl, and just at that moment, like a yell of demonic mockery out of sulphurous caverns, the unearthly tones of Tipton Posey's goose call resonated from the woods on Swallowtail Point and reverberated beyond the weirdly lighted waters. One or both of its builders had probably come to test the powers of the unholy device and were unabashed by the drama that glorified the night skies. With blind instinct of self-preservation, Rat rose to his knees and made a faltering attempt to grasp his paddle, but his hands refused the dictates of his palsied brain. He cowered as one in the presence of the ultimate. To him, in this appalling display of supernatural power, and the evident impending end of all things, had come the agony of abject terror and despair, and before it his rude conception of life collapsed. His past flashed before his distorted vision like a hideous nightmare. His world suddenly lost reality. The human creatures in it changed to throngs of fleeting phantoms, impelled by unseen forces. They glared, grinned, and gibbered at each other as they hurried through the mist and vanished into the oblivion from which they came. In the realm of fear there are ghastly solitudes. They pervade dim phosphorescent glows on ocean floors, and they brood in the desolation around the poles. They creep into awe-stricken hearts when the filmy strands that sustain the ego on its frail human web are broken and denuded spirit stands in utter loneliness at the brink of chaos. In the course of an hour the wonderful radiance that had transfigured the heavens and chilled the marrow bones of Rat Hyatt ceased as suddenly as it had begun. The frightful unknown sounds from the woods were not repeated. Rat finally succeeded in getting on his feet. He pushed his canoe out into the channel and started upstream, but it was a changed man who swung the long paddle. His soul had been rarefied in chastening flames. He was as one who had met his Maker face to face, and his only hope now was that his lifespan might be mercifully extended until he could make amends for the past. He reached the houseboat in the early morning, much exhausted, and threw himself on the rude bed where his shattered nerves found partial repose. End of chapter 6, part 1 Recording by Tom Hirsch